Welcome to the Sunday School lesson from Joelton Church of the Nazarene. My name is John Mills. I'm glad we can be together today. We are continuing our series of lessons from Thessalonians. Today's lesson is titled, Unleashing God's Presence and Power in Our Lives. But before we begin the lesson, let's, let's bow our heads for prayer. I want us to pray together the prayer that Paul prayed for the Philippians. Philippians 1, verses 9 through 11. This is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Amen. By incorporating these commands that Paul gives us in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18, rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances. When we incorporate these commands into our lives, we recognize and magnify the holiness of God. We focus on God's glory and the power of God is unleashed in our lives, the power to make us Christ-like or in other words, to sanctify us. 2 Corinthians 3.18 And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory. Sanctification is a key doctrine of the Nazarene Church. We emphasize sanctification as the key to the abundant life that we are promised in Christ. John 10.10 Jesus tells us his whole purpose in coming is so that we may have life and not just any old life, but Jesus says that you may have life to the full. In Ephesians 3.19, Paul writes that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. In 1 Corinthians 2.9, we are promised no eye has seen, no, no ear has heard, no human mind has conceived the things God has prepared for those who love Him. Sanctification is the key to loving God, to living in the full capacity of God's love and returning this love to Him. Sanctification is a process as we surrender our will, as we consecrate ourselves to glorifying God. He fills us with His Spirit. He transforms us into being like Christ. The result is we are able to experience God's love and to return that love, to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love our neighbor as ourselves. When God sanctifies us, our lives are freed from the corruption of sin. We're purified. We're made holy. We are freed to be fully human to be what God created us to be, and that is to reflect His glory. Scripture tells us we were created in the image of God. Sanctification allows us to be fully shaped, to be fully fashioned in God's image. Philippians 2.15 reads, So that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. This is the promise of sanctification. To experience this, to have it brought to fulfillment, requires us to put to death the sinful nature. 
Colossians 3.15, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Romans 8.13, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. To do this, to put our sinful nature to death, there are two general strategies that we can use. The first strategy is to work hard at resisting sin and temptation. We build up our defenses to keep all impurity out of our lives. We strengthen our resolve. We build up our willpower to make sure that we can oppose sin. A second strategy is to focus on increasing the presence and fullness of God in our lives, being filled with His glory, filled with His holiness, to the extent that Christ is everything, and there's no room in our lives for anything but Him. We can illustrate this by looking at how we create a clean room. Now, a clean room is a technical term for a sterile environment, an environment that's free from any kind of contamination, any kind of foreign particles. For example, the operating rooms in a hospital, or maybe it's the room where they manufacture computer chips. But these are rooms where you can't allow anything from the outside to get in. And so they create a clean room by carefully sealing off all of the outer openings to make it impossible to get in from the outside. But they almost never get this 100% right. No matter how carefully, it's almost impossible to prevent everything from coming in. So, designers create a positive air pressure inside the room. So, the air inside is at a higher pressure than the air outside, and it's constantly pushing outward. So, if there is a breach in the seal, the pressure inside the room is so great, everything is pushed to the outside, nothing from the outside gets the chance to flow into the room. We see the same principle at work in our bodies. Did you know your intestinal system is filled with bacteria? They estimate anywhere from 300 to 500 different kinds of bacteria. As many as 100,000 billion microorganisms. But this is actually a good thing. The vast majority of these microorganisms are beneficial to us. And they protect our health. Our body has defense systems, some of them very intricate, to keep out bacteria, viruses, things that cause disease. But inevitably, some bad bacteria are going to make it into the intestine. But because we have so many bacteria clogging our intestines, there's no room for the bad. The good crowds out the bad. It keeps the bad from being able to thrive and to multiply. So, I believe we see a principle at work here. The most effective way to keeping the bad, to keeping the impure out of our lives, is to be filled with the good, to allow the good to push out the bad. Jesus gave us a parable to warn us of the danger of trying to ward off evil while we remain empty on the inside. Matthew 12, verses 43 and 45. When an impure spirit comes out of a person... It goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean, and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself. 
and they go in and live there. Jesus wraps this up by saying the final condition is worse than the first. Now, we often see this in our lives when we try to keep our lives clean on our own strengths, under our own efforts. But we are sanctified. We're made Christ-like, not by focusing on our willpower, uh, using our strength to resist temptation, but we are sanctified by focusing on Christ himself, Christ who reflects the full glory and image of the Father. When we're filled with God's glory, There's no room for anything unclean or impure in our lives. When we stuff ourselves with God, we have no appetite for anything else. Then we can appreciate the truth of what St. Augustine says when he says, Love God and do what you want. So often we see the sanctified life as one of restriction, one of restraint and self-denial. We see the sanctified person as the one who's able to give up the pleasures of this world, to deny himself in order to please God. And so the sanctified life is seen as a constant battle to remain untouched uh, by the world. In Hebrews, though, it's interesting. We are given a much different picture of sanctification. The sanctified life is presented as a life of resting in God, Hebrews 4, 9 reads, There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. You remember, the Sabbath was the seventh day of creation, the day that God rested, when He stopped to rejoice and to glory in all that He had done in creation. And we are called to enter that rest. We cease from our own labors, our own striving, and we rejoice in the glory of God. Hebrews 4, 10 For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their own works, just as God did from His. When God sanctifies us, He gives us access to that rest. He provides a relationship with Him, free from anxiety and worry and struggle over sin. I like this quote from Ed Stetzer, and I've used it before. He writes, The death of self and submission to Christ is not a sad end to an otherwise great life. It's a huge gasp of air after living underwater. And to me, I can just picture a person coming up from being submerged in water and giving that first great gulp of air. And you know how how good that feels when you've been denied air. Sanctification is not the end of our lives. It's only the beginning it opens up for us an entirely new kind of life. I like to compare our spiritual life to the physical universe that we live in. Scientists tell us that our physical universe, this vast panorama of stars that surround us, it all began as a singularity, an infinitely hot, infinitely dense, infinitesimally small point containing all of the matter and energy in the universe today. And this singularity exploded, it expanded within a fraction of a second into the vast universe that we see. But what's even more incredible, scientists tell us the universe is still expanding. As we sit here, our universe is growing larger. For our spiritual lives, sanctification is the explosion of this new type of life, a life that expands exponentially a life that continues to expand every minute of our existence.
When we see the full scope of the sanctified life, we can see why Paul would write in Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Sanctification is this process where God does more than we can ask or imagine. And I've said all this because I want us to be fully convinced of the reality of the power of God's sanctifying work in our lives. I want us to see sanctification as the grand and glorious gift of God that it truly is. Too often, we find ourselves settling for a distorted version of sanctification where sanctification is made into a system of keeping the rules, a way of measuring uh, how saintly we may be, or of demonstrating our self-righteousness by showing how much we're willing to sacrifice for God. So it's no wonder that this type of sanctification holds little attraction. But when we see sanctification for what it is, how can we resist it? Now, we've been looking at three very short, but very powerful biblical commands. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. These commands provide us with strategies to allow God's sanctifying power to work its full effect in our lives. We rejoice always by finding all in the immensity and vastness of a holy God. We pray continually by delighting in Christ, inviting Christ into our daily activities. We give thanks by adopting an all-or-nothing approach to gratitude, thanking God in all circumstances, or admitting we aren't truly grateful at all. Now, we need to understand why these strategies work. They are effective because they promote God's holiness. They bring God's holiness into focus for us. And when we behold His holiness, it changes us. We are transformed. As I quoted earlier from 2 Corinthians 3.18, We all, with unveiled faces, contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into His image. God's holiness is not an aspect of, of who He is. God's holiness is the essence of who He is. In other words, it's not a characteristic of God. It's, it's the very fact of God. The primary meaning of holy is separate. That which is holy is that which is other. It's different from anything else. So when we say God is holy, we are pointing out His otherness, His separateness, God's transcendence and magnificence. We are saying God is above all, superior to all. God is in a class or a category all to himself that he shares with no other. Holiness means that God is always God. What God does is always right. What he says is always true. What he promises will always be done. God cannot be other than himself. He can never act in a way that's ungodly. God is always perfectly God. This is what we begin to grasp when we begin to see God's holiness. And so two changes take place in our lives. When we recognize God's holiness, 
we give up trying to manipulate or control God. We realize that God is holy, and this means He's far beyond us. He's in a category by Himself. He cannot be reduced to a formula or a system that we can manipulate and control. And we are freed from worry or anxiety. We know that God's holiness means God is perfect in everything He does. He can never do anything other than act out of perfect love toward us. God's power is unleashed in our lives in His full sanctifying power as we grasp the full extent of God's holiness. The effectiveness of these three strategies, rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances. The effectiveness is that they emphasize God's holiness. They glorify God. And as we see God's glory, we fall in love with God. Our love for God deepens and matures so that we love Him more and more. And as our love for Him increases, we begin to desire His glory rather than our own. As we rejoice in God, we experience awe at a God far larger and vaster than ourselves. To rejoice in God is to recognize His immenseness. And as we do, our love grows. Every time we rejoice in God, our understanding of just who He is, our appreciation of God's superiority, of God's perfection, this increases, and so does our love. As we pray continually, we are inviting Christ to be present with us. We are delighting in the presence of Christ. We recognize God's infinite worth. We recognize His holiness. And as we delight in the presence, in the experience of Christ, our love for Him grows. As we give thanks in every circumstance, we acknowledge that what God does is for our best. He is always working for our good. When we give thanks in all circumstances, we are acknowledging God's perfection in everything. And as we recognize the extent of His love, our love for Him grows. So each of these three practices, each one promotes and emphasizes God's holiness. And as we carry out these practices, our understanding of God, our confidence in God, the, the grasp of God's holiness increases, and so does our love. And as we love Him more, sin loses its power over us. God's love fills us, crowding out any space for sin to grow and to thrive in our lives. Paul's first command was to rejoice always to rejoice by finding all in the immensity and in the vastness of God. All is this commingling of dread, veneration, and wonder. Uh, that's how Kurt Snyder defines it. Experiencing something unexpected, unexplainable, something truly extraordinary. We need to look for ways to rejoice in God, to look to ways for ways to find all in God, in who God is. And one way we do that is by finding all through God's created works, recognizing all in God's world, in God's creatures. You know, we can go outside to observe a sunrise, a sunset. We can take a walk. We can listen to the birds. We can watch the butterflies. There are so many things we can do. Go outside and take in a full moon. 
go outside on a, a dark, clear night and look at the stars. You know, watch an approaching thunderstorm. So we've, we have lots of ways to let us discover all in just who God is. And as we discover all, we realize the immensity, the holiness of God. We also have lots of, of media available to us. We have pictures. We have videos. You know, you can find all kinds of websites online that will show you amazing things that you can observe in God's nature. And so we think, well, you know, there are places like the Grand Canyon and Niagara Falls. We can go to these places. And that's true, and they're very good places to visit. But we don't have to do this. We can find all of God in our everyday world, in the places right around us. It's important that we learn to really observe, to take the time to stop, to look at our world, and to see exactly who God is. Now, we can also find all for God, not only in His world, but in His Word. We can look to Scripture and find occasions to, to wonder uh, in who exactly God is, to find all in what God does. Uh, Loyola was a, a saint of the Catholic Church who brought out a number of ways for us to draw closer to God. And one of these ways was to use an interpretive method for studying Scripture. It was a way to put your imagination to work. Really, it's a prayer form, but developed by, by St. Ignatius of Loyola in the 1500s to help people know Jesus through their active imagination. And so you can select a section of Scripture, for example, an episode from the Gospels, and let your imagination find its work. Read the story through. Focus, first of all, on the broad strokes of the story, when and where it takes place, who is there. And then try reading it through a second time and looking for the smaller details. Imagine yourself, a person, a character in this story. What would it be like if you were actually there? If you were there on the day that Jesus healed the blind man, if you were there the day when Jesus calls Lazarus out of the tomb. We have many uh, things presented in the Bible. If we can use our imagination, we can get a clear sense of all in who God is and what God is capable of doing. Paul's second commandment was to pray without ceasing. We pray without ceasing when we cultivate an awareness of Christ's presence by inviting Him into our daily routine. So, we recognize God's holiness because we recognize His infinite worth. When we pray without ceasing, what we are telling God is, you are an important part of my day. Your presence is important to me. Every minute that I spend in your presence enriches me. It's valuable to me. And so, we bring glory to God. Now, there are a number of things that we can use, strategies, to, to get ourselves into this mode of praying without ceasing. You know, many people might use a physical object as a touchstone. It's a tactile reminder that every time you touch this object, every time you handle it, we're reminded of Christ's presence. And we breathe a prayer of Christ. 
We ask Christ to make us more aware of his presence. So, you know, it may be something like a, a small stone that you keep in your pocket. It could be any number of things, but just something that we would handle on a regular basis that would remind us that Christ is present with us. Now, we can also pray continually by trying to change the negatives, the annoyances of our lives into affirmations. Imagine the difference if every time we had a complaint, instead of complaining, we made a conscious effort to turn it into a praise. Every time we had a criticism of someone, we turned it into a blessing. For example, number 6, 24 through 26, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he smile on you and be gracious to you. This is a way of inviting Christ to be present in our world on a continual basis. You know, uh, we, we can turn uh, times throughout the day when we experience impatience and irritation and frustration. We can turn those into times of praise to invoke God's presence. We can use triggering events in our lives, things that we know we're going to encounter each and every day, and we use these to remind us that Christ is present. But it's a way of making room in our lives for Christ so that, that we invite Him into what we're doing. And we don't have to, to uh, begin with some giant, uh, you know, momentous effort. But try to make an effort to take one activity that you do every day and invite Christ to be a part of that consciously. Invite him to be there with you as you're doing that activity, whether it's making beds, whether it's sweeping floors, whether it's taking the dog for a walk, maybe it's driving to work in the morning, whatever it might be. But take one thing and say, Christ, will you be present here with me in this activity? Use your imagination to put Christ beside you, sitting in the seat next to you, standing next to you, walking beside you. You know, I, I, there's a quote, and I've, I don't know who the author is, but it says, Imagination is not the ability to conjure up what is unreal, but the capacity to see what is real but unseen. So, I would encourage you, use your imagination. Use your imagination to place Christ with you throughout the day. So there are a number of ways that we can do this, but we want to use routine daily encounters to be a channel of God's presence, of Christ's presence into our lives. We want to welcome Christ into the daily events of our lives. Now, the third command that Paul gives us is to give thanks in all circumstances. We can glorify God by adopting an all-or-nothing approach to being thankful, a deliberate choice to be thankful in everything or to be thankful in nothing. What if you begin the day with a vow, Lord, today I will give thanks to you or I will not be thankful. I won't be lukewarm. I will not be neither hot nor cold. Now, we can't imagine telling God, I'm not going to be thankful today. But in reality, we aren't thankful. When we aren't thankful for everything, we aren't being truly grateful. And yet we fool ourselves into thinking, well, I'm a grateful person because I'm thankful for 
half of what God does. I'm thankful for two-thirds of what God does. In reality, if we're not thankful for everything, we're not thankful for anything. We're not truly grateful. So I would encourage you, make an effort to truly thank God for everything. At the end of the day, make it a practice to think back through your day. Recall the events of that day, all of the things that happened, and make a conscious effort to thank God for every one of those events. Whether you enjoyed them or not, whether you understood them or not, but to say, Lord, I trust you that this event was what I needed in my life. What this event is somehow being worked out for your glory. But we can bring praise and honor to God. We often feel that the key in making a success of the Christian life is to keep a strong rein on our desires, to keep our desires tamped down, to maintain an iron grip so that we fight off temptation. C.S. Lewis provides an interesting uh, viewpoint on this. He tells us, God finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. According to C.S. Lewis, we're mucking about here in this world consumed with desires for things that are trivial, things that aren't important in the long run. And God is saying, don't curb your desires. Don't tamp them down. Instead, ramp up your desires. Desire bigger things. Desire better things. Desire me. Let's close in prayer. Dear Lord, I ask that you would help us as we go through this next week to take these three commands that we've been looking at and to allow you to use those commands to fully sanctify us, to make us in the image of Christ. Let our desire for you, our desire for your holiness, grow to the point where it consumes us, where the hunger for you pushes out the desire for anything less. We give you praise in your name. Amen.